Thanks, Michael, uh, for reading that for us. I love this part of God's Word. Uh, it's such an exciting part of God's Word to hear what David is thinking and how he treats his God. Now, if you don't know me, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. So great that you can come together today to hear how this part of God's Word actually helps us to unlock all of the books of Samuel and helps us to think through what life is about. So why don't we pray that God would help us now as we try and understand there's some tricky parts in this section of God's Word that God would help us to understand Him and how great He is. Let's pray. Father, we come to You today aware that You speak to us. We come amazed that You step into our world to let us know about You and about life and how that is lived. We pray now that as we see through David's eyes You, that we would get to know You more this very day. That Your Spirit would shape and mold us to understand who you are and what you've done for us. And you might send us away from your word today, excited about you, changed by you, longing to be like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you to reflect on a question with me. What is it that gives us purpose? What is it that gives us purpose as as humans? What makes you live? Can I get a bit of... love to hear what people think. Interactivity is good at times. Good kids are already trying. Well done. What gives us purpose? Yeah, yeah. Family. Yep. What What things? What else? Keep calling out. Work. God. whole heap of things. I'm going to keep doing this a bit more as we get used to encouraging one another, as we think through God's Word. We are here to build one another up, and we'll see some of that in this passage. But as far as I can see it, our motivation to live depends on a belief that we have something to live for. Our motivation to live depends on a belief that we have something to live for, whether that be friends or family or work or career or life and laughter a contribution to society. We get up in the morning because we have something to get up for. The thing that drives us is hope. Hope drives humanity. A life without hope is hopeless. It's a life of desperation and disappointment. The reason that we get up is because we have some type of hope, I want to put it to you. Whether that be a dim and distant hope of something in the future that might happen and we look forward to a life that we think will be good or will that be a desperate hope? (laughs) Something good has to happen. Surely today it's been bad for so long. You know, maybe something good will happen today and we we get up for that reason. Or perhaps even for some, a deluded hope. Reality is something that we move aside, we don't want to think about and rightly or wrongly, we just go, oh, I'm sure it will all work out in the end. And so we have a hope that isn't based on truth. But all of us, I want to put to you, have some kind of hope. For without it, we are hopeless. Hopeless. One of the worst experiences in life is the experience of losing hope, isn't it? When there is nothing to look forward to. A tragedy that we're in the midst of. A failure that we've committed. A disaster that's that's kind of on our minds. Or just disappointment with ourselves, with others, with the world around us. All those things can make the future look so bleak and ask us why. A life without hope can be terrifying. 
if you've ever been through that experience of losing hope, then you recognize how essential hope is. Some kind of positive belief about the future is essential for us to live, isn't it? Well, today we see that God's Word teaches us a profound truth. The only way to have lasting hope, the only way, is to know the God of history. The God who sets history. The God who is in control of all things. As we get to this last sermon in the Forever Rain series, the last kind of talk, looking at the last section of 2 Samuel, we come across these chapters from 21 to 24 of 2 Samuel, and they're a little bit different from most kind of Bible narrative. We see in these chapters the basis of hope, but it doesn't come in a way that we normally expect. It comes in a very different package. See, 21 to 24 is, is a different type of ending than used in other types of narrative. It's kind of like an appendix. You know, when you, you read through a book and you get to the end and, then, and it's like, okay, there's one little thing at the end, one appendix to kind of attach on. Well, this is what this section does in 2 Samuel. In fact, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. But it provides a different type of structure to understand the whole book and, and to go, how do we make sense of what has just happened before us? And it's kind of collated together um, different events of the life of David, not in chronological order. They gather together kind of in a literary form to show us something, to summarize the theme of the book. Here's a description of what it's kind of like. So in 21a, you've got the failure of Saul. In the first section of 21, it talks about Saul's failure. You go to the end and you get in 24, the failure of David. They're kind of like bookends. And then in 21b, you get um, the second half of 21, David and his men and David's weakness. And you're like, man, David is all about his men and he was weak. And you get that again in 23b, the second half of 23. So it's like they've gathered together these concertina uh, stories from the life of David to make sense of what the book is about. And what is the book about? Chapters 22 and 23a. They're two poems, two songs that David collates together that make sense of Saul's weakness and failure, David's failure, and shows us who is at the center of this book. And so David writes this song. He's probably, he is the most popular songwriter in Israel, the most prolific songwriter. He writes these songs so that people would understand what life is about, what God is about. He talks through all different sorts of experiences of life. But here, the writer of the books of Samuel says, this is what it is about. This is where we find hope. This verse isn't on the screen, but um, 22 verse 1, David spoke the words of this song to the Lord. On the day the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. We don't know exactly when this is. It is Psalm 18, if you want to check it out later. Uh, It's recorded again in the Bible in Psalm 18. But David speaks this song. And it's a really helpful little thing for us to understand about singing in church. We sing to God. We praise God. We speak of His goodness. But we don't just do it quietly on our own. David wrote these songs down and circulated them throughout Israel. Why? So that all of Israel could sing with him about the greatness of his God. We get this great privilege of coming together as God's people each week. And one of those great privileges is singing together to build one another up, to remind one another of God's actions, his character, his goodness, his, his salvation. So as we gather together, we need to join with David and sing Sing loud, sing strong, for these words remind us 
of who God is and what he has done. Well, David's song, as it starts here, begins with the echoes of another prayer that we heard earlier in the books of Samuel. It was spoken many years earlier by Hannah when she became pregnant with Samuel. She uttered these words, 1 Samuel 2.10. Have a listen. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, but he'll give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. The books of Samuel started with a a prayer that was a promise and pointing forward to what would happen, what God would do. He would lift up his king, a king to rule his people. He would lift up the horn of his anointed, his Messiah is that word. And now we see at the end of 2 Samuel, that prayer has been answered. Not completely, for there will be another foe, another enemy that would need to be conquered. And another king from David's family who would conquer it completely. But what Hannah had known in 1 Samuel 2, David had now come to know as well. Have a listen. The Lord is my rock, verse 2. My fortress and my deliverer. My God, my mountain where I seek refuge. My shield. The horn of my salvation. Hear it? My stronghold, my refuge and my savior. You save me from violence. I called to the Lord who was worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. David reflects on the trustworthiness of this God. The God that he trusts is the God who has power to save broken people. He is his refuge. David reflects on the character of the God that has carried him through so much. The character of God that Hannah pointed to at the start of the books of Samuel. This is who God is, my rock, solid, my fortress, my deliverer, my mountain where I seek refuge, the horn of my salvation, my savior. He is God. This is what he is like. But there's something else that we need to see about this God. He is not some distant, far off force or some ritualistic spiritual dimension to life. He is not some kind of added thing that just sits out there. He really was David's saviour. Like, really. He is personal. He stepped into David's world. The dangers that David speaks about were, were real dangers. Violent men like Goliath, who want to rip his head off. Nations trying to take David out. You've got all sorts of people trying to get rid of him. The king of Israel saw Saul trying to kill him. His best friend's dad and his own son Absalom. David's experience, his rescue, was a rescue from real dangers. This God is not just a way of thinking, a way of ordering our world in a spiritual dimension. He is David's rock. He is David's fortress. He is the place where David is delivered. He is the one who does that really and truly in the life of David. This God is no in the fairies, up with the clouds type of person. He is involved with our lives. Listen to David's experience. Verse 5. For the waves of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol of death entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to my God. And then here is joy. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry for help reached his ears. 
Have you ever felt like the world is closing in around you? Like you've walked into a, a dark alley on the wrong side of town and you just can't see a way out. You feel trapped. You don't know what to do. Like the world is closing in. Sometimes the circumstances of life have put us in that position. Other times it's our own actions that have kind of got us in that moment. Our rebellion against God. The desire of David's enemies, of Goliath, of Saul, of Absalom, were to de- delete him from the world. As David sums up his life in this song, as he looks back on the storyline of his days, he recognizes who is at the heart of every moment, every salvation, every security. The God who saved him. He calls out to this God. And that rock held him. That refuge secured him. The one that delivered him was the true and living God. How amazing is that? That that God who made him, who sustains the universe, who created all things, would care for him. That he would hear him. As David reflects on his life and what this God has done, he can do nothing but praise. For God is worthy of our praise. His goodness and greatness and actions and love deserve to be known to everyone. And so David writes, he sings, he sings loudly because that's what songs are about, singing the praises of others. That's what most songs are about, unless you're Adele. If you're Adele, your songs are about breaking up because that's all she sings about really. He's breaking up with someone else and you call those laments. And David has some of those too. He has moments where he does lament. But the beat of this song at the heart of the book of Samuel is the praise of the character of the God who saves. His power and goodness and salvation. Have you seen this God? Have you recognized what He has done? How good He is. How He has acted despite the way we act. For many of us in this room, the opening lines of David's song are words that we too can sing. Some of us in a different way. But it's the same God who has answered our prayers as well. We can point to all sorts of dangers and troubles that God has delivered us from. Troubles of our own life, troubles around us. But in David's descendant Jesus, we can sing the words of this song where death itself has been defeated. The enemy is not the enemies of David, but death itself. that has been pulverized and crushed at the cross. What a great privilege it is to know this God to sing praises to Him, to remind one another of what He is like, to think through who He is and what He does and what He has done for us, our fortress, our rock, our salvation, our deliverer. He is definitely worthy of our praise, isn't He? But in the first place, this song is about David. In verse 8 and 9, we start to see the anger of God. Have a look with me. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils and a consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. We move in David's thought from God as the salvation and fortress to God who is angry. And we're like, why is he celebrating the anger of God? Anger is not something I usually celebrate. I don't come home and go, excellent, I was angry today. Done well, Rowan. Anger is something I try to curb, to hold back, because I know I'm not perfect, but God is perfect. Unlike us, He is never angry at the wrong things or for the wrong reasons. 
His anger is just and right and delivered in just the right places. He's angry at the right things, the injustices of the world, those who have rejected his role as God. Here, in David's life, he was angry because God's king, David, the one God chose after God's own heart, was threatened with destruction. How dare anyone come against my king, my anointed? You will not thwart my plans. The violence of David's enemies, the cords of Sheol pulling at David's ankle, the distress of his anointed made God fume. Get away from my son. People sometimes object to the idea that God can be angry. But I want to put it to you this morning that God's anger is one of the most wonderful things about him. Isn't it good news that God is angry about injustice? Isn't it good news that he will not let violence go unpunished? That hatred and death and destruction will be defeated? That cancer and war and starvation and cruelty are not things that are good? Imagine a God who didn't care, who did not show his anger to the world around, who did not right wrongs, who did not have ultimate justice. If his nature was just to say, oh, well, that's life. Through to the keeper, let's move on. The goodness of the justice of this God, that justice that will be poured out on death itself, that justice that has been poured out on death itself at the cross with David's son. But this God did not just stay fuming in the heavens. He stepped down. Have a listen to what happens in verse 10. He parted the heaven and came down, a dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew soaring on the wings of the wind. He made a darkness and canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. From the radiance of his presence, flaming coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High projected His voice. He shot arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of His nostrils. God's justice was delivered. His King was brought through. The enemies were put to death. Verse 17. He reached down from heaven and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my distress, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How astonishing to hear those words. Imagine you are David at this point, to hear that God delights in you. He delights in David. Have you ever reflected on God's delight for his people? That God might delight in us, the one who is above all else, who need answer to nobody, chooses to hear our cry and step into our world and rescue us and delight in us. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Do you know why God rescues David? He rescues him because he delights in him. Because God chooses to love David. He is the one that God chose after God's own heart. Not because of what David had done, but because God just went, this one I will choose to make my king. From the man who was walking around behind the sheep trying to be a shepherd, I will make the ruler of the universe forever. 
through his family and his son. It's so unlike any of the other loves we experience in life. So often we love people or delight in people or things because of what they bring to us. The joy that we have from them. They, they give us something. We love people because they're lovable. But God chooses to love the unlovely. He delights in those that are not perfect and right. And bringing them through His power and goodness and glory to follow Him. That's his nature and character. He is the God who loves, who delights in broken people. But then we hear verse 21. I don't know what these words did to you as Michael read through that while you looked at it this week in Connect Groups. We hear verse 21 and you, you kind of go, what? What are you saying, David? The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. For I have kept the way of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I have kept all his ordinances in mind and have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him and kept myself from sinning. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. You're like, what? Do you feel that? We we know the story of David. We've been following this through for the last few weeks. Do you not remember the adultery, the murder, the atrocities that this happened? Had David forgotten Bathsheba? Had he forgotten Uriah? Had he forgotten that he had murdered one of his own people? Does he really think he is blameless before God? Does he honestly think that God owes him something? Is he saying at this point, I'm not a sinner? Because that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? You get here and you're like, has David lost it? Has he gone cuckoo? What's, what's, what's happened? He's gone from these great heights of what God is like and God's rescue and pulling him out of the depths to then saying, I'm the man. I've got it all together. I, I didn't do anything wrong. Is he honestly saying that he is right before God? So often in God's word to us, whenever what we read doesn't really make sense. It makes us stop and rethink. It's often God molding us to see something even more profound, to, to mold us to be thinking even more deeply about Him, to understand His nature and character even more. The first thing we've got to know at this point is, is the Bible writer who, who put together the books of 1 and 2 Samuel placed this song here for a reason. He's not a complete lunatic. He's not gone, okay, I'm going to put it all up. I'm going to read through all the stuff of David's life and we'll get to the Bathsheba and the murder and how all things went downhill. And then we'll put this thing at the end that says David was perfect. Everyone will read that. He's put it here to make us go, what? How can he say this? He knew that we'd have this feeling of how is it that David can make these claims? We're supposed to ask, how is it possible for a murdering adulterer to speak as David speaks right here? And the answer to that question is perhaps the most important key to the whole passage. After David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, the prophet Nathan came to David and said these words, 2 Samuel 12 verse 13, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Here's the key. We might still remember David and what he did. 
as the one who disgustingly rebelled against God. We might look back on his actions and say, how could you ever do that? But God does not. God does not see him as a sinner. For he had taken away his sin. Listen to what David said to God. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. The point is not that David was righteous because he he lived a righteous life. The point is not that David was righteous because he, he prayed in the right way and said the right things to God. The point is David was guiltless because God washed it all away. He washed it all away. It's what God did, not what David did, that made David whiter than the snow. How often do we forget God's forgiveness at the cross? How often do we think we still stand dirty before the God of the universe? David gets right what God says. He takes God at his word and trusts him. It's done. It's dealt with. It's finished. It has no more rule over me. God chose to delight in David. And righteousness was God's reward according to what God gave. The, clean, the cleanness of David's hands is what God gave him. The cleanness of the hands that God had provided. Because of God's forgiveness, because of his mercy, David is able to say in verse 22, I have kept the ways of the Lord. And have not turned from my God to wickedness. Indeed, I have kept all his ordinances in mind and have not disregarded his statutes. David's evil actions don't undermine the fruit of God's grace because his evil actions have been washed clean. What a joy that is to know that our relationship with God has been completely washed clean if we trust in David's son, Jesus, who took the penalty for us. Of course, the only way David could actually say that is if Jesus came and paid the penalty for what David had done and you and I had done, which is what has happened. David here is not self-righteous. He actually has taken God at his word. He truly believes that the Lord has taken away his sin. And my question is, do you? Do you really believe that God has washed away your sin? That you stand, if you trust in Jesus, perfect before him this very day. If you don't, then please come to Jesus. Recognize that as he died in your place, he took the penalty for you. Recognize that he delights in you because he has sent his son. Verse 32 wells up in David as this song moves through what God has done and how God has presented him. Verse 32. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. My God is my strong refuge. He makes my way perfect. Did you hear that? Not I am perfect. He makes my way perfect. It's God, not David, who's made him blameless. And so he repeats about the goodness of God, about the fact that God is his rock and his salvation and his refuge, like, like a little child. Have you ever come across a child that is so excited about something, that just keep telling you the same thing over and over and over? I do it to Sarah all the time. I'm excited about something. I'm like, oh, did I tell you this? She's like, yes. 
Uh, I'm excited about things that I kind of forget and I just want to tell people because I'm excited about them. David is standing here looking at his God saying, have you seen him? Are you captivated by what he has done? He is the rock of our salvation. He really has rescued us from death and judgment. The rock, his refuge, the one who listens to his cry. How different it is, though, for the enemies of God. For those that reject God, you see in verse 42, they look, but there is no one to save them. They look to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like the dust of the earth. I crush them and trample them like mud in the streets. Why? Because we are deserving of God's judgment. The main section of David's song then ends at the highest of heights. Look with me and see how he he strings the whole book together. Verse 44. You have freed me from the feuds among my people. You have appointed me the head of nations. A people I had not known serve me. Foreigners submit to me grudgingly. As, As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. David's reflecting on where God has brought him to the highest of heights. God's king will rule the world. Did you see that? He has been appointed the head of nations. Foreigners will submit to David. The only issue is, David was just the king of a small Middle Eastern empire, not the whole world. David's standing at this point at the end of his life. You'll see in a moment the last words of David. And he's standing here kind of going, I'm the king of the world. Who do you think he is? Leonardo DiCaprio? Titanic, you know? Is he just got a little bit carried away? You know, he's a songwriter. You know what musicians are like. They kind of, they write songs and they get a bit carried away and they think everything's kind of big and maybe they're the center of the universe. And I play guitar, so I'm happy to apply that to me. Um, and, and, you know, songwriters say big statements and he's here just going, yes, you've appointed me the head of the nations. Look how great I am. Not at all. See, the promises to David were not fully realized in David's own lifetime, but God used David's word to light up our lives now, to light up our eyes to see his son who would rule forever. The king whose horn would be raised up, the horn of his salvation, Hannah's prayer. The 2 Samuel 7 king who would reign forever, the death would not defeat, who would conquer it all. There would be a son of David, in whom this line would be fully realized that every knee would bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The song makes sense fully when we realize it's actually about Jesus. The one who is everything David failed to be. Like David, Jesus was threatened with destruction to the point of destruction on a Roman cross. Like David, he cried out to God in distress. Like David, his father God rescued Jesus from his strong enemy, from death itself, from rising him from the dead. Death could not hold him down, for he was pure and blameless, perfectly righteous, unlike any other human before him. He is the king to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. The one to whom those knees will bow and tongues confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. So David concludes his song 
not knowing with full detail, but pointing forward to his son who would come. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. Verse 50. I will sing about your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David's song points us to the last two lines in Hannah's song. Remember, 1 Samuel 2.10. Those who oppose the Lord Jesus will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Yes, this has implications for David right here as God's anointed king. But it was just a shadow of the reality to come in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus. Then we hear David's last words. Come with me to chapter 23 and we'll read them together. I want to show you how this comes and then lifts our eyes to how great God is. These are the last words of David. 23 verse 1. The declaration of David, son of Jesse. The declaration of the man raised on high. The one anointed by the God of Jacob. The favorite singer of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises. On a cloudless morning, the the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Is it not true my house is with God? For he's established an everlasting covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and every desire? But all the wicked are like thorns raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. David's hope is for the day, the ultimate hope. That when the morning light rises, when the sun comes across on a cloudless morning, the glistening of the dew on the surface of the grass lights up and people see the Son of God. God's promised King Jesus. He is the Davidic Son. He is the hope of the promise of God. It's in Jesus' trustworthiness. It's in His salvation that we can stand and say, He is my God. In Him is my rock. He is my deliverer, my fortress, my strength, my power. He has conquered death and offered me life. question for us this morning is, have you seen God's King? Have you seen how amazing He is that He steps into our world, not only with His Word, not only in our lives, but in person, in the Son of God, Jesus? He is our hope. He is our security. He is the defender of our souls against sin and death. He offers us His righteousness so that we might have hope. The way to sing David's song, the way to have David's God as your God, is to have David's son Jesus as your king. And when he is, when you recognize what Jesus has done, we can stand and say with David so clearly, the Lord is my rock. He is my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my mountain where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. 
you save me from violence. Because we can call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and be saved from our enemy of death. Friends, I want to end this whole series today. Not just going, oh, how great is, is, is this? How great is the literary device that is here? Or look at what has happened to the life of David. I want us to end this book saying, how great is our God? To be able to praise Him together. So I thought what would be a great way to do that is to spend the next five minutes. Um, why don't we just out loud from our seats, uh, one person at a time, pray short prayers of thanks for who God is and what He has done for us. Just short prayers. Why don't we say that in the presence of one another? Sure, we haven't got it to music and written a song like David can. We're not the favorite singer of Israel. But we are His people gathered together. So why don't we together now begin to set our hearts on how great God is by thanking Him for what He has done in the presence of one another so that we might say Amen. How about we spend the next five minutes now just calling out and praying to our God for what He has done. Let's pray.